Hello, and welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this week we are going to talk Mexican. I have invited a friend of mine, a chef from Monterrey, Mexico, named Patricio Wise, who is now living here in Northern California, to talk all things Mexican. We're going to go over things like what is it about regional Mexican cuisine that you may not see here in the United States? We're going to talk about the importance of corn in Mexican cooking, which, if you don't know, is, for most of the country, the foundational grain that they use in pretty much everything in the kitchen, from soup to desserts to tortillas to sopes to tostadas and tamales and you name it. Finally, we talk about a bigger issue, and the bigger issue is how do you even get started to really learn a cuisine, to be a student of Mexican food or Italian food or Thai food or something like that. Because all of us come from a place and we all know our own cooking, whether it's New England or the American South or Tex-Mex or whatever, but most of us don't want to cook that one kind of food for the rest of our lives, right? So how do you get into a new cuisine in a way that will make what you cook at least a reasonable approximation of what you would get in, say, Oaxaca or Thailand or Japan or Africa or Germany. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. And here we go. Hey, Patricio, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am really stoked to have you on. Not a lot of people know that you are a... uh, a serial restaurateur, both in Mexico and here, and I'm very excited to talk later about your newest venture. But today, I really wanted to dive deep into two things. One, a kind of a 30,000-foot perspective, and that is the process and the, the journey of learning a new cuisine. And specifically, uh, the new cuisine that I am learning is Mexican food. And I'm trying very hard to go beyond you know, chimichangas and... Tex-Mex and all yeah. that kind of thing. And, and, and so I think the best way to start would be to tell everyone who's listening um, what's, your, what's your food background and, and what you're doing um, and, and, and what your journey is right now. And then we'll, we'll take it in from there. Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, and let's clarify, I'm not a serial restaurateur. This is my second restaurant venture. <laughs> Two's a trend. <laughs> well, yeah. It's a different concept, though. But yeah, let, I mean, let me start to... Uh, by saying a little bit about myself, I'm originally from Monterey, Mexico. This is in the northern part of the country, uh, close to Texas and to the Gulf. There's It's just so diverse. So we're practically very isolated up, up in the north by the Sierras. Uh, and it, there's just a whole different farming culture up there. I mean, the, the, the ingredients that we can get up there are different from the rest of the country. So that keeps us kind of isolated in the gastronomic perspective as well. I am, a, I am self-trained. I actually did not go to culinary school. I, I'm a finance guy, actually. Don't ask me how I got into culinary. I didn't go to cooking school either. I learned I learned by doing. So. Yeah, that's exactly how I did. I mean, you buy a book, you read it, and you cook the recipe, and then you throw it out and cook it again, and then you eat it. <laughs> and then you, and, you know, and then of course part of it is finding people who know what whatever it is should taste like, and and feed it to them. Yes, exactly. And then you can get real feedback because. I mean, otherwise, you, you never know. You're reading the recipe, but uh, maybe you're not cooking it to the point where it should be or something like that. I mean, it's 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 always good to have direct input from somebody who knows the food specifically if it's or I mean, not specifically, but even more so, it's important if it's uh, a sort of ethnic cuisine that uh, has been handed down from generations to generations. If you know what I'm saying? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny that the the use of the term ethnic food is hilarious in the United States because yeah. somehow British food isn't ethnic, or German food is not ethnic, but Mexican food is ethnic. Well, the whole, uh, I mean, the whole nomenclature of the whole thing is, uh, I think, ridiculous. I mean, it, it, yes, in the U.S., anything that is not American food or French or any of the formally recognized styles is ethnic. So. But in reality, everything is ethnic. I mean, it, unless it's a fusion kind of deal. But if you think about it, even hamburger is ethnic to maybe Germany. And then it, it got uh, translated into American cuisine uh, with American ingredients that we could ma- uh, find here because they're produced en masse, you know, I mean. Exactly. I mean, but the, the, that's, gonna, that's another piece that I want to get into at some point. You know, then you talk into the express, you talk about the expression of Mexican food in America. And that in and of itself, I mean, there are a solid three to five big regions of the United States that have very traditional Tex whatever, you know, Tex-Mex or Cal-Mex or New Mexican food or the Mexican food you get in Chicago. And it's all of them have really good, you know, Mexican-American populations and their food is different from each other as well as from Mexico. Yeah. And it's completely different styles. I mean, Tex-Mex, I wouldn't call it Mexican. I wouldn't call it American. It's Tex-Mex. And it's a style in its own. It's, uh, I mean, I am, uh, I'm no history expert, but I know that, uh, I mean, Texas used to be part of Mexico and a lot of people uh, from Mexico, even in recent years when it it already was part of the United States, uh, immigrated. And, uh, it's it just became kind of a blend with what they had available and, and it evolved into Tex-Mex and and of course the industry picked it up and started the well making it big and famous and that's what it is unfortunately for people in other parts of the country and I mean not the United States that haven't necessarily traveled or read or experimented uh, they believe that to be Mexican because that's what they're being fed by the media well, it's fascinating. Is that one of my funny, funny little anecdotes? Uh, I don't know. It had to be probably twenty years ago. Taco Bell opened up a restaurant in Mexico City, and there were lines around the block because the people of Mexico City wanted to try American food. Amer- yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it is. I mean, it's 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 Mexican inspired American food. I mean, it's that simple. Anybody who calls it Mexican, well, okay, travel to Mexico, and you'll see how wrong you are. So talk to me about your own learning process and learning the the, the the huge number. I mean, first of all, I think we have to say this at the outset to anybody listening, is if you're not really familiar with the idea of Mexico, it's a really big-ass country. Yeah. It's a lot bigger than you think it is. Um, it goes all the way. Geographically, I think it's about the size as, or, or slightly smaller than the entirety of Europe. I mean, just the, 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 the land size. It's just yeah. big. I mean... And it covers a lot of latitude. That's yep. the other thing. I uh, think I, I think it covers more latitude than the United States does. I don't know. I am no geography expert either, but the, but it is very diverse. I mean, and we're closer to the equator. So it, as it progresses from this from the southern parts of Mexico, uh, over by the Yucatan and the Oaxacan regions, all the way to the northernmost parts, which is closer to California. It's completely different climates and microclimates and what people can grow. And and I keep saying this because, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that people would usually eat what they have locally. 
so and this is how all the different cuisines evolved and and it brings us back to what we were saying earlier i mean you need to have somebody from there if you want to verify that what you're doing is region appropriate or or uh, not region appropriate but uh, a good example a good of example, what you're trying to do a good representation of what they would do there yes uh, so you're from Monterey, and so you grew up there, and you grew up with well, that is now is that Norteño cooking? Yeah, the same thing, or is uh, there... we call it Norestense. It's pretty. Uh, it translates to northeastern Norteño. Uh, would pro- it could be said Norteño as well, but the thing is that there's northern, there's more northern parts of Mexico like in Chihuahua that has a similar style because it's very kind arid. Kind of more Sonoran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very arid, so they would um, they evolved into a big uh, beef-eating uh, culture, pretty much like we are in Montreal, but in Montreal we also have goats and a lot of pig. The goats started because, well, when the immigrants traveled from Mexico City to the northern parts of Mexico through this road, I mean, you know beef doesn't travel, and pigs maybe, right. but beef definitely doesn't travel. So they traveled with goats because this is what they what they ate along the way, and then when they settled, then they started bringing uh, they started uh, swapping goats with or I mean not swapping but they started importing pigs which were a present to the Mexicans from the Spanish. So I mean go figure now we eat pig. <laughs> well you know it's it's not easy to raise a pig in the Sonoran Desert so they you know but you yeah. can raise those but it is. obviously go- obviously goats but uh but also yeah. those um very drought tolerant uh cattle that they raise out there the brahmins yes yes yes, yes. you see them on baja too you do see yeah it's uh, somehow they uh, that species evolved into being like you said very tolerant and that's what they have fed themselves with for years and years and years so what was the first, you know, when you were growing up, did you have, you know, restaurants in Monterey like, oh, I want to go to the Yucatecan restaurant today or I, well, I want to go to the, the Oaxacan restaurant or the, the, you know, one from Michoacan or something. Is it, so was there, when you were growing up and going to college in, in Mexico and in, in Monterey, w- was that sort of a thing that was there or is that, w- or is that just some sort of me thinking? Oh, <laughs> well, no. When, uh, Montreal has only explored it culinarily speaking in recent years. Like, in, like by recent, I mean six, seven years. Oh, Be- it's like Sacramento then. Yeah. Before that, there there existed restaurants. I mean, when I was a kid, we would go to the restaurants where my parents would have gone with their parents, uh, pretty much. And what they served was, and this would be on a Sunday after church, you, everybody would meet there, these huge restaurants, like haciendas even. And it would be a meat-centric menu with, rice and beans and i hate saying that because it's a very different rice and beans than what you get here uh, right <laughs> but these were the staples of, i mean um and it it's a very simple menu everything evolves around an open fire pit it's either grilled and roasted or uh, made in the barbacoa style which was which is a a, a pit dug in the ground you you put a cow's head in there and then you open it up the next morning and you make tacos with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a funny one for, for listeners because a lot of our listeners have eaten barbacoa either at Chipotle or at a, a Mexican restaurant yeah, in, that's, in the that's, States. And when they, when they, and then you may, you may have seen the Bizarre Foods episode with Andrew Zimmern where he's actually doing real barbacoa with a, with a cow's head in, the, in a pit oven. And people's, people went out of their minds and like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> You can actually see it here in Sacramento when you go to a taco truck and order cabeza. Yeah. 
but it's different though because uh, I don't know. How, I mean, I've seen it cooked in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's simply braised, but it's not braised long enough. So instead of actually being shredded, they dice it, and it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be a very slow, long self-bracing process. It, right, it's it, shredded. It's a it's a sealed pit, so uh, the oxygen eventually consumes. So it's an anaerobic cooking also. I mean, there's no oxygen in there, and that mm. also affects how the texture comes out. Uh, in the end, it's 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 very hard to replicate in the in a home oven or in a restaurant oven. It's doable, it's like, but it's but it's 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 not the same thing. I mean, it's, it's like birria. Birria is if yep, you look yep. at real deal recipes for birria, I'm sorry, dude. I'm just not going to set up a steaming rig in the middle of my oven and try to figure this out. I'm just going to braise the damn goat, right? Yeah. So birria, if again going back to Sacramento where both of us live, it's it's one of the specialties of the Mexican food right here or where we live and you can virtually everybody does it and there's some really truly amazing birrerias downtown and but it's it's this I think it's Sonoran if, if no, I, if uh, I would I would speculate that there uh, it's either Michoacan or or Jalisco uh, yeah you're probably right you're probably right I've I have a buddy from a small town in Jalisco who they get together at the ranch every weekend and they have a, a, a concrete pit, a concrete pit where they actually cook the birria. And the way they do it is that they put the goat in a, in this cage all butchered up and they fire a very hot fire. They lower the cage and then they cover it with clay. They let the clay dry and then the next day you actually break the clay and pull out the cage, which is pretty much just to help in the handling of the cooked goat. And you have birria, and uh, below all that, you obviously had some sort of pot collecting all the juices, and you make the consomme with that. That's amazing. But the whole process, think about it. I mean, you're building an oven every time you're cooking, and then you're breaking the right. oven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not ideal for like a, a commercial kitchen. No. Oh, no. I mean, unless you had a commercial artisanal kitchen where, yeah, there's birria on Sundays, and that's it. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, it's just sort of why they, they only do menudo on weekends, too. Yeah, it's a very convoluted process also. And, you know, good menudo is great. Bad menudo is... very is, bad. You, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to eat bad menudo. It, 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 I mean, you know what goes in it. <laughs> yeah. Barnyard stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the, the funny thing about it, though, is like if, you, if we, we could go out, we could walk through all of the stuff that you and I eat here in Northern California all the time. And you're right. You, like you mentioned before, it's almost all from Michoacan and Jalisco. And if you talk to, you know, go to Mexican restaurants, say in I don't know Colorado or Chicago, it's it's it could be a bunch of immigrants from, from Monterey parts, or yeah, from, from Yucatan. And exactly. they have educated people, like uh, say in Chicago. I mean, Rick Bayless, he has done amazing efforts to promote the real Mexican cuisine. Uh, I mean, so as Diana Kennedy, they have both won awards uh, issued by the Mexican government for their, well, for their efforts, for their insistence in actually uh, doing the research and investigating and, and documenting and actually promoting the real Mexican cuisine. And he's, I mean, he's based out, out of Chicago. I, I've never spoken to him. I don't know if his love for the uh, Mexican rose out of all of the Mexican food that was available there. And he just grew curious. I mean, no, sure. actually, he's from Oklahoma. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he's an he's an Okie from uh, from Eastern Oklahoma, and I have talked to him a few times. And his story is he basically just fell in love 
with the <laughs> the shitty Mexican you get in Oklahoma, and then travel down to Mexico, and his mind exploded. This is you know thirty thirty some odd years ago, yeah. and just became a complete sponge. And it's been decades and decades that he's spent a lot of time really being a student of that cuisine. And that that actually gets into a really interesting point. Especially here in America, there is a huge, huge, interesting prejudice about people who cook a particular cuisine that are not of the ethnic group that they're cooking. So like, like me cooking Mexican or, or you cooking, I don't know, German or something like that. Well, I'm and like, so like, <laughs> all right, well. No, all right, I'm, fine. Bad example. So I'm you're cooking Thai. You. I'm, 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 I'm just messing with you. You could be half German. There's a lot of German. No, I am. Yes, uh, I, I mean, I actually am. But I was just. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> but you know, I mean, but but you know, you walk into like there's a famous case of well, Rick Bayless. Rick Bayless gets piles of shit by people like, oh, you know, Gringo cooks Mexican, and it's like, go screw yourself. I mean, this guy spent so much time this and effort on research. He knows how to cook Mexican better than many Mexicans. Right, and it's and it. I think that's an interesting piece of, uh, you know, America has its own problems of, and all kinds of reasons for you know, national and racial and ethnic thing. But that's that's a really weird one where, you know, you, you know, a bunch of white people walk into a uh, you know, say Uchi, in uh, which is this in amazing Austin. sushi restaurant yeah. in Austin. Yeah, I, I uh, we were there two years ago. Uchi and Uchiko, both of them, amazing. Right, I mean, delicious sushi. And very innovative and experimental to 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 some sorts, and I I kind of think I know what you're going to say. And it's a white dude who runs the place, <laughs> exactly. And well, shit, right here in uh, in Sacramento, the, the if they gave Michelin stars to restaurants in Sacramento, they would give it to Billy No. Oh, yeah. at Crew. Yeah, for sure. Well, Billy's Vietnamese American. He's not you know from Osaka or from Tokyo or anything. He's he's a He's a California dude, you know, Vietnamese origin, yeah, which is like sushi. <laughs> right. You know, so it's like uh, this is a thing that drives me batty. And it also uh, I'm but at the same time, I'm very aware of, you know, as a guy of Scottish descent, cooking Mexican or Thai or whatever it is that I'm doing. I do extra research and do extra analysis or whatever you want to call it to make sure that if I'm going to put Cochini de Pibil on my website, Anybody who makes that from the Yucatan will say, yeah, yeah, it's, that's Cochini Bibil. No, mine, mine might be different, but that's a pretty good representation of Cochini Bibil. Yeah. And also you have to keep in mind that all these preparations, I mean, they're more than recipes, they're methods. I mean, it's just the way it's been cooked with the ingredients that we have. It, uh, I, I get asked all, all the time questions, and should I use pepper or should I use this? or Use whatever you want. I mean, it's... As long as the main flavors are there, you can, I mean, cochinita pibil, for example. If you use blood orange and achote and you braise the pork, it's pretty much cochinita pibil. I mean, <laughs> if you make it better because you actually toast the spices before you grind them and, and add technique and actually really control the temperature and monitor the texture, well, then that it's a better cochinita pibil. Maybe, or maybe not because the street one that doesn't really actually get so much care for some reason ends up there, but I mean you have to try it. Think about it. Yeah, I mean that is that's a good point about, and this is this is pan global. I mean there are there are some very specific rules like in gumbo or in yes. cochinipibil or whatever that that it basically it's a superstructure of, a, of any given recipe that makes it 
carne asada or makes it pibil or makes it gumbo. But within that superstructure, you have an enormous amount of the ability to riff off whatever it is that you want to do. Definitely. And it's funny that you should mention carne asada because, I mean, carne asada for me or for Mexicans, or specifically Northern Mexicans, you say carne asada, you're referring to an event where you cook meat in the grill. So it's it literally translates to grilled meat. So well, that's asada, right? <laughs> yeah. So when people, well, yeah, but it's it doesn't have to be skirt steak all cut up into small pieces. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, a prime ribeye, it's still carne asada. <laughs> it's meat cooked on the grill. That's literally what it translates to grilled meat. So it's it's funny also how. Now somehow it's a recipe and it's a specific cut of meat that it has to be and it has to be it has to have certain spices and cooked a certain way. I'm like, well, no, it's like saying cooked chicken or roast chicken. Well, you can roast it with many different flavors, but it's still roast chicken, you know. I mean, exactly. Let's talk about things that people listening here who like to eat Mexican food but don't necessarily cook it at home. What are some things that they ought to know? Like, okay, if I'm if I'm going to start cooking real deal Mexican, you know, like not Tex-Mex, which is fine in and of itself. I don't want to diss on on the American, Mexican-American styles. But if you wanted to, to look at real regional Mexican cooking, what are some of the things that would blow their minds? Like, that, that they, like really? They do that in Mexico? Well, I mean, we can start with barbacoa, but uh, I don't think anybody, <laughs> <We did. laughs> I don't think anybody's going to dig up a hole in their backyard and, and or or maybe they will. I mean, I did, <laughs> but uh, it's just so diverse. I mean, if anybody was interested, I, I, I would just say read one of Rick Bayless's books or Diana Kennedy's books and go with the flavors that you like with the meats that you actually like eating and are used to to cooking usually uh, because I mean. I mean, how are you going to cook goat if you've never ever even seen a goat or I mean, you you can and you should you should try new things but if you're just getting into the cuisine I think you should go with what you're familiar with and modify it in a Mexican way with some guidance I mean the research is there we would be stupid not to take advantage of it right I I think let's start let's talk about to that end the importance of corn in Mexican cooking it's the uh, Sin maíz no hay país. <laughs> That's what they say. Without corn, there's no country. Uh, <laughs> it was. It, it's been sustenance even before the Spaniards came. Uh, I mean, corn and cacao. Th- that's what Mexico had, and and not only Mexico. I mean, most of Meso- of of uh, pre-Columbian uh, America. I mean, extending all the way south into. I mean, look at Peruvian cuisine. It might be different species of corn, but they use it a lot. They call it choclo. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in Mexico, well, and then on all the way up until New England. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, it it's a good staple to grow. It it's easy. Well, I mean, let I don't want to say it's easy, but but you know what I mean. <laughs> Corn's pretty easy to grow. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, it is. To that matter, uh, in Mexico, it's, it's not just that it's popular. It's it's that it's relatively cheap, easy to grow, widely available. And everything is made from corn in the Mexico. I'm not everything is made from corn, but I shouldn't have said it that way. We use it so extensively for everything in the kitchen. That's more or less what I wanted to say. People think it's only used in the tortillas, but it isn't. I mean, you grind up corn, you make it into a masa, 
and you can use that to thicken some broths. Uh, of course, it will have a corn a corny flavor, but the, but that's the whole idea of of that specific broth, for example. Or right. or uh, I mean, forget about tortillas, sopes, picadas, tlacoyos, uh, empanadas, um, all all sorts of different vehicles that are pretty much. Uh, it, it's amazing the whole. I'm 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 amazed. I mean, as I'm doing the research for the restaurant that we're opening, we're going to be cooking all our. I mean, cooking. We're going to be making all tortillas in house from land raised corn from Oaxaca, right? It's so land- why Oaxaca and not Monterrey? Well, there's no corn in Monterrey. <laughs> ah, too <laughs> too too dry. So it's wheat. Yeah, too dry. So it's mostly wheat, and the wheat was introduced by this. I mean, remember Monterrey was uh, founded by Spaniards, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, by by Jewish Spaniards actually. Really? Yeah. So they getting away from the Inquisition, no doubt. Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, running away, uh, and the and they got good positions in the new land, uh, in the promised well, no, it's not promised land, but in the new land, and then and some of them found. I mean, went on to found really big cities. One of them was Montreal, but uh, most of the, I mean, some of the culture permeated and and stayed. I I go back to the goat, and uh, I mean you go to Montreal, you have dessert at a real Montreal restaurant, and and you'll get a lot of goat's milk based candy, all sorts of it, huh. like milk caramel, but it's goat's milk. It's got that speci- that very particular kind of more sour flavor to it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's goaty. It's goaty. It is goaty. I grew up with it. I love it. It. I believe for some people it might be an acquired taste, but it's delicious for me. But they introduced wheat, yes. Um, corn wouldn't grow well, so uh, up in the north, apart from corn tortillas, flour tortillas are very, very, very popular. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's that's a really interesting thing. That you, you, do you see the corn versus flour tortilla wars where you get some, you know, I hesitate to call them hipsters, but let's just call them people who have a modicum of understanding of Mexican food, yeah. and they will say that, oh, well, there there are no flour tortillas in, in real Mexico country. Mexican cooking. I'm like, uh, what about the entire North? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if you if you go to the South, I mean, what they're saying, um, I mean, to the to central parts and and the southern parts, what they say is almost true. But uh, but again, we go back to now you can get anything anywhere, whenever. So, but the roots of the cuisine that started there, it it was all corn based, and to that extent, it grew into such a kind of microculture where I mean. Everybody in Mexico knows the phrase "sin maíz no hay país." It's mm. it's that important. I mean, recently, like I think a couple of months back, uh, Monsanto actually won a legal battle to start planting GMO seeds in in Mexico. Everybody threw a fit. I mean, they went berserk, and the government had no choice to actually overturn. I mean, overturn the decision <laughs> because we have, I think, fifty nine or sixty nine. I mean, something like that. Uh, different land race species that are heirloom species in themselves, they haven't changed for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And think about what would happen if uh, in the field next door somebody's planting um, GMO corn. Exactly. Well, it's sort of like potatoes in Peru. Yeah. Well, bye-bye non-GMO corn. I mean, uh, and now you have to really label it and specify it. Everything was non-GMO. Why do we have to now go back to, no, this one's special because it's like it was. Well, yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So talk about nixtamal. It's uh, you nixtamal, know. yes. I mean, getting back to the corn, the corn itself, if you if you grind it up, many people think that to make tortillas, you just grind up the corn and then you make a tortilla. Well, if you grind up corn, you end up with cornmeal, <laughs> pretty much. You actually need to cook it first, and you need to cook it in a 
in a basic solution, uh, it sounds complicated, but it's pretty much just uh, water with lime, with slake mm-hmm. lime. Slate, slake slake lime. lime, not, not, lime not, not juice, the citrus. Not lime juice, no, no, no. <laughs> I've, I had Which some, would make it acidic and not basic. <laughs> yes, I had somebody do that once, and and they were, well, you said lime, and I, yeah, like lime, like slake lime. Oh, okay. <laughs> like like when we, like when the mobsters... Say again? Like when the mobsters kill you and, and throw you in a ditch, th- what they throw on you. Well, I, I hear. I don't know from experience, but I I've been told that it could it could be done with both acidic and basic. <laughs> and I think when they go basic, they use lye, not lime. <laughs> oh, that's true. You're right. It's lye. Yeah, that'll eat through you, man. So you you basically make a basic water solution, and it's actually it's actually a suspension because it won't dissolve. You need to to keep stirring and stirring and stirring just so it keeps suspended. In other words, mm-hmm. it all falls to to the to the to the to the bottom, and then you cook the corn in here. And what happens is it's an amazing transformation. The lime reacts with uh, with the corn. It dissolves the hard cuticle and it transforms the germ and the endosperm into it. It 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 transforms the gums within, and it makes once you grind it up, it makes it cohesive instead of mealy like corn meal is. Yeah. Yep. So and it also unlocks all of the nutrients oh, yeah. in corn. So yeah, if you don't nixtamalize your corn, you and you eat basically nothing but corn, you get pellagra, which is a disease that was very prevalent in the in the rural South in the Depression when people were so poor, all they'd eat would be cornmeal mush, but they wouldn't they wouldn't do this to their corn. So there's a particular nutrient they become seriously deficient in, and it causes that disease. Yeah, I think you and I had had talked about this before. It's, it's I mean I'm I'm not familiar with that specific well the mayas and the aztecs figured it out so the yeah. the mexicans never had that problem and, and, <laughs> and there's myths and stories about how they figured it out maybe somebody who was cooking the corn just for to make into puffed corn maybe uh spilled some ashes in there from the fire and they, they realized that it came out better and that people were feeling stronger and I me mean, you never know but the thing is that if you want masa, you have to nixtamalize it. Otherwise, it will not be cohesive. A tortilla will not, a tortilla or a sope or whatever will not stay together. It's, how how big a deal is fresh masa? Like if you live in Monterey and you're just and you're not a chef, uh, you just go to the store and buy fresh masa, or do you go to the store and you know what's you know, or do you buy homemade tortillas or or what? So like, so I view this. I view this whole process of nixtamalizing your own corn and then making your own tortillas and such very much like making your own pasta in in Italian cooking. So, in other words, yes. something that you that people do, but not, like the average Joe would just buy pasta. Yes, and that it it's a it, it's a perfect analogy actually. What happened was that, and I remember my grandmother and my mom speaking about, yeah, we need to bring the corn to the meal to actually get it ground up because. Well, people usually don't have a stone mill in their house, right? Uh, so what would happen exactly. is that they would cook the corn for next days, um, for the following days, uh, the tortillas, tostadas, whatever they were making corn based. And in the process, I failed to mention, you actually I mean, you have to let it steep for about eight hours. So it, it works out perfectly if you cook it at night and then you just let it steep uh, overnight and then early in the morning you bring it to the mill, it gets ground into, and then you have masa for the day and the process repeats every day. And and this was this would happen on a daily basis in regular households. But then of course uh, the industry caught up too, and they developed 
uh, this this one particular big company in in Mexico developed a technology to dehydrate in a way that could be rehydrated simply by adding water the nixtamalized corn and then they realized well if we add gums and preservatives we increase the shelf life and so that it was kind of like an industrial revolution for tortillas uh, and that's that's the masa harina you can buy in regular supermarkets. Well, ma- masa harina, what I understand more by it is that it's masa. It's still called masa. It was flour first, if if you know what I mean. Instead of just ground up corn, which is masa, so it never was dehydrated and then rehydrated. And it, oh, okay. And the but yes, that that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, ironic—I mean, not ironically—but the thing also that needs to be differentiated is is that masa translates to dough. So it, it, I think it's just a way to specify that it's masa for it's dough for tortillas that was made from nixtamalized corn. And then you add the harina to specify that it was actually from a flour that you just added water and made a thicky ball of dough, which is completely different. I mean, the texture—I mean, you've worked with it, remember? Uh, mm-hmm. The the texture you get from uh, from real masa, and I don't mean to say that masarin is not real, but from the traditional process, is a much more beautiful product. And it's I I I don't know. It how smells it, better. Yes. It feels better. It's 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 this it's the closest thing you can get in Italian pasta making is to grind your own wheat. Yeah. And make your pasta dough from that to get that similar aroma. I mean, the the smell is really. I mean, you, if you have fresh made masa and you smell it, and then you you know the tortilla that you make or the or the tamale that you make, it has this particular. I mean, an American like me would say, "Oh, that's that Mexican food smell that I love so much," and it's it, it's yeah. a fresh corn. Every time I mix some of this corn, you have no idea. I mean, it brings me it brings me back memories. It just smells amazing. Uh, just the the this, this the steaming pot smells delicious. I I love it. I mean, but then again, I'm I'm slightly biased. <laughs> so I think talk to me about easy ways that a newcomer to uh, Mexican cooking can I hesitate to use the word more authentic, but but maybe like uh, I'm thinking of things like oh well you could you could char your vegetables, you could use a mocajete, you could there are certain things that you just do technique wise for other cuisines that that get you closer to what you're looking for and, and what would you do in Mexican food? I would definitely I mean if somebody asked me personally and and said hey I want to learn Mexican I'm willing to put the time in I know basic cooking I I uh, I I can make what a boil uh, <laughs> I mean pretty much uh, I would recommend well if you really want to be serious about it and experience I I would encourage people to actually try the nixtamalization process or and I say or, but not exclusively, get used to to making your salsa in house instead of buying the store the store made product. Which I don't want to say it's bad. It it just if you make it yourself, there's a sense of accomplishment and you learn something new. And most of the times it will be better, even if it even if you screw it up, just because it's fresh. Right. I mean, one of the things that I talked about, I, I wrote a, a post actually featuring a Yucatecan stew called uh, Chocolomo. Oh yeah. Where the one of the signature flavors of it is that flavor of char, yeah, and of uh, charring peppers and onions I, and all these other things. I was going to say that, and going back to what we we're saying about recipes and how people sometimes get anal about, oh, if I don't follow it exactly, then it won't be the real thing, and then it won't be Mexican. Well, no, that's not the case, and specifically with salsas. Now that we're talking about that, 
salsa translates to sauce. That's it. I know that uh, it's it's been sold as if it's chunky, it's salsa. Otherwise, it's sauce. But <laughs> if it's not pico de gallo, it's not salsa. <laughs> yeah, pico de gallo is pico de gallo. Pico de gallo is not salsa. I'm telling you that. In Mexico, you ask for salsa, you'll get some sort of sauce. You ask for pico de gallo, you get pico de gallo. If you complain, they'll tell you that's pico de gallo, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so going back to that, if you like tomatillos, if you like serrano peppers, if you like cilantro, if you like onion, well. A simple salsa would be to put everything in the blender and boom, voila, you have a salsa. You need some acid yep. and you need some salt to actually make it lively, but that you adjust with the taste by tasting. It's a raw salsa. Well, tom- tomatillo is plenty of acid. Well, uh, you need to adjust. I mean, maybe you need some lime juice. Mm-hmm. You never know. I've I've had some really sweet ones uh, recently that you'd be surprised. Huh? Yeah. The other thing I think is interesting is that, you know, those those really crappy tomatoes you see in a Mexican market yeah. that are just like, oh, they're just so sad. <laughs> One of the, the secrets I've, I've thought about it, like, well, why would any self-respecting cook buy this shit? You want and the, reason, the reason is because you can char the hell out of it. I was going yeah, yeah, to say that. I mean, I mean you can have a, a, raw, a raw salsa. And that's good. You see them all over the place. Or you can, once it's already ground up, you can fry that in pork lard. And it would make it even better, in my opinion. This is my own personal opinion. Or if you go back a couple of steps, you can char the hell out of everything. And by char, I mean, like, burn it. Make it black on an open fire. It will taste better. Trust me. (laughs) Especially if there's wood involved. Oh, yeah. So now that you're mentioning those uh, Roma tomatoes, they're not as wet as their as their beefsteak counterparts or an heirloom variety, which you wouldn't want to transform in that way to begin with. But those are really good because you can char the hell out of them, like you say, and they won't disintegrate when you grab them with the tongues. Exactly. So just a couple of weeks ago, you know, so one of the things that I've been on specifically is, is my great tamale quest, and I've probably made tamales 20 times so far now and just to try and, again, this is this is the white guy trying to get it right so that when I Practice makes put perfect, some, man. Exactly. I mean, it's like when I talk about, you know, home cook versus a restaurant cook, and one the example I always use is, so how many times have you done a leg of lamb? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I love leg of lamb. I probably do it at least four or five times a year. I'm like, oh, great. I used to work at a restaurant where we had leg of lamb on the menu, and I did six a night <laughs> for six months. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the more you make it, the more you're, you're good at it. And, exactly. But... The last set that I made was really, really good, by the way, and it was a very close approximation of the venison tamales uh, that you gave me, the, the recipe for that. And talk to me about game and you know wild game and wild fish and wild plants and mushrooms that you have seen in Mexico. So I know that Mexican cooking actually does treat game and wild fish fairly frequently so it's not like a crazy thing to ask yes uh i i mean you know i'm no hunter myself i am surrounded by hunters all over the place in mexico most of my friends hunted but like i've spoken to you about several times before most people at least in northern parts of mexico it's a sport Uh, they hunt for the trophies and they don't discard the meat of course It, it it gets harvested and it gets used but they're not looking for that one deer at the start of the season because you want to stock up your freezer so what happens is that they go for the trophy and then the meat gets handed down to pretty much be preserved in some way. And instead of uh, freezing the 
the suprimals, uh, what they do is uh, it's it's the winter, the hunting season, and in the winter, tamales are very popular. So somebody realized that you could use venison to make amazing tamales, and then you can freeze those tamales and eat them through the year. And it, wow, so they made it. They make tamales out of an entire deer. I guess, yeah. I mean, wow. It, <laughs> it gets. So what they do is they they harvest the meat, they take it to the tamal lady, pay her fee, and then she'll manufacture the tamales. I mean, she'll turn the venison into tamales, and then you just pick them up when when you're stuck for the year, or just give the meat to the rancher. And I I guess this is why I kind of never started hunting down there because I. I'm not that I don't respect it, but it's if 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 you're gonna kill an animal, at least the the least you can do is treat it with respect and really enjoy the meat that you're harvesting, right? Exactly. Well, what about what about wild fish? You know, fish off the you know both in the Caribbean and in the Sea of Cortez and in the you know I mean, there's a lot of fish that is involved in in Mexican food and. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, you're maybe not from that right spot, but surely you've traveled around and seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of fishing outfits outside. I mean, out, uh, out of the, the the different coastal towns in along the Pacific and even in the Gulf. Lacking from personal experience, I know from from acquaintances and and friends, it's kind of like a trophy to go out and catch a big marlin. Oh yeah, well, I'm not necessarily talking about marlin fishing. I'm talking okay. more like hanging out in a you know. Kitchen Pargo or or oh, well, yeah. snapper I mean, you, group. You, you go to, Ver- to Veracruz and, and that's what you get. You get red snapper, you uh, you get Pargo and they fry them whole. And I mean, if you say wild fish, well, yeah, they're all wild fish because the fishermen go out every day and catch them. And, and that's what you ate. Uh, that's what you eat. There's we still haven't got to the to the part of industry of food industrialization where it's on a large scale being farmed. Not yet. Gotcha. They'll get there. But pretty much every, I mean, I don't want to say every, because again, you can buy anywhere you, anything you want, anywhere, <laughs> whenever. So most restaurants, I think, and I'm spec, I'm wildly speculating here, will probably go with the convenience of uh, buying what the restaurant uh, supplier sells, which is probably if you want. I mean, I'm diver, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit by saying salmon. But it's probably going to be from, um, Chile. from Norway or Chile. Yeah, it's not going to be wild caught anywhere near where you're eating it. The same goes for other species. Unfortunately, I mean, if if you go to the coastal towns, most probably there you will be eating something that was caught that morning. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed is uh, I've been starting to do some looking into Yucatecan cooking, mm-hmm. and they eat a lot of game, turkey especially. I mean, it's I don't think a lot of people know that turkeys. Uh, were first domesticated in Mesoamerica. So not sure if it was the Mayans or the Aztecs or both, but we can the, the whole idea of a domestic turkey came from what is now Mexico. And then the, the early Spanish brought it back to Europe. And here's the hilarious part. And then they brought it, it back con- to the U.S. And then they brought it back to the pilgrims, right? <laughs> I know. Did you know that the original mole recipe calls for turkey, not chicken? Yeah, mole de guajolote. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, yeah and it's, it, that's the, that's. I look forward to turkey. Turkey season actually starts tomorrow. Um, oh, right. We're we're now in California's turkey season. I have some good mole here. Yeah, well, I mean that's the that's a, it's interesting because <laughs> guajolote is a different mole, a different turkey. than some of the other ones that I that like. So Holly actually does an excellent. That's the mole poblano that we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
how would you describe uh, so salsa is a sauce, but mole is a sauce too. Well, if you in the general terms of it, yes, uh, just like uh, bechamel is a sauce, and so is uh, brown sauce. I mean. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay, so mole is a subset within salsas. Yeah, it's it, it is a sauce. It's a. I mean, there's nothing written in stones. Some people cook in it. Some people don't. It's. I don't want to go and say something that uh, then somebody proves me completely wrong. I, I mean, I like to cook the chicken in it, or the chicken, or the duck, or the or the turkey, whatever. I mean, whatever we're doing with mole, which is usually some sort of poultry, at at least with black or. Uh, poblano style moles. If, if we go into Oaxaca, now there are seven regions with each one with different subsets of moles, and each one has its own different application. And that's an entire topic for a whole different conversation. <laughs> you could do an entire episode on moles. An entire day, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a mini series. Actually, yeah, that, that wouldn't be a bad idea, you know? I think one of the good things, though, back to game and Mexican cooking, is that the nature of of Mexican cooking lends itself to anything wild. There's a lot of shredded things. Yes. There's a lot of grilled things. There is a lot of soups. There you know so you can you can basically sub in wild quail or wild turkey or venison for beef uh or and, you know ducks. And this is where the experimentation that I was saying earlier comes in. I mean, you don't have to follow a recipe. It's a method. It it's a a, a macro recipe, or I, I don't know how you call it, but the, it's more of a guideline. And if the ingredients are available in that specific region, then it will be endemic, or I mean, not endemic, but, uh, and I, I also refuse to use the word authentic because it's been so exploited, but more authentic for the lack of a better word. What part of Mexico, in terms of their food, are you most fascinated with that is not Monterey? Oaxaca, by far. I mean, speaking of diversity, the whole country is diverse, right? I mean, Oaxacan cuisine is very different from from not extensive, the the Monterey cuisine, and from Central cuisine. But then you go into Oaxaca, and it's so diverse even within the Oaxacan region. Like I said, there's seven different regions that are separated by mountains. Uh, oh, okay. So I mean, you have valley. I mean, you have the valley, you have the coast, you have the the mountain, you have the foothills. So it's it's very very diverse and it's and again this comes back to it's closer to the equator it's easy to grow things but somehow there's so many microclimates in there that different things grow in different regions even though they're all in Oaxaca. Give me give give the listeners a sense of if you're back home in Monterrey, well actually back home right now in Sacramento, but when you know when you were living in Monterrey and you wanted to go to Oaxaca, how long a flight is it? Because well, you're not going to drive. No, you're not going to drive. If you did drive, you'd drive to Mexico City and then drive to Oaxaca. You're talking one day travel, probably two days. If you're flying, it's a one-hour flight. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, so that's not that far. One hour, an hour. Well, no, I lied. Maybe an hour and a half. Uh, remember that it, that Mexico is kind of curved. So, I mean, you're really going to the southern part of the Gulf, pretty much. Good point. In, in a straight line, it's not that far. If you're driving, yeah, good luck with that one. Yeah, because you got to go all the way around the curve. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. What you hear in professional kitchens all over the country is that the Oaxacans are always the best cooks. Yeah. And it's been getting a lot of recognition lately. And uh, I mean, again, there's a lot of researchers there who have done immeasurable efforts to promote that specific type of cuisine, Diana Kennedy to name one, and mainly because she was so enamored by it as well, it, it, just because it's... To be enamored with. I mean, there, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's amazing. It's diverse. It's delicious. 
anything you try there will be amazing. Even the grasshoppers. I mean, people get disgusted by this, but hey, grasshoppers are a good source of protein and they're a staple in Oaxacan cuisine. <laughs> I've eaten those, uh, the roasted ones with chipotle on them. Those are damn good. Yeah, they are. It's like crunchy, shrimpy chipotle. <laughs> um, think about it. You compare it to shrimp. Yeah. I mean, have you seen a shrimp and a grasshopper? They pretty, they kind of look yeah. similar. I mean, <laughs> too close, too close for people to think about it. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about Oaxaca is they have everything. It's it's like Emilia Romagna would be this the comparable place in Italy, where it's the it's a region of Italy that has everything. I mean, they've got yep. the truffles, they've got the olive oil, they've got the everything. It's like all of the other. Most of the other parts of Italy are cuisines marked by scarcity, and which, which in, in a way makes them great. You know, Sicily is, is a tough place to live, and they've created wonderful, amazing, great food out of a place that can be pretty harsh. Greece is the same way, but when you get to Emilia Romagna, it's like the land of milk and honey, and and, and yeah, Oaxaca yeah, is <laughs> very similar to that. It is a, a place where there's like, ah. Oh, You've got seven different mole. And now, if, if you've never, well, no, people no. understand mole as about as a as a the bastardization is oh, it's, it's that's the chocolate sauce. Well, yes, there is chocolate in mole, but uh, yeah, but I mean, it's and we've all had really wretched moles here in the states, and it's ugh. Yeah, no, so basically, I mean, whoever who knows about this topic and, and and you talk to them, it it just so happens that there's seven regions which have their car- their characteristic mole. So there's there's seven moles, but then within each region, there's many different combinations of uh, which is pretty much based on the ingredients that that they have available. There's a lot of chiles that uh, that are endemic to some of the regions of Oaxaca that won't grow anywhere else in Mexico. They're very hard to cultivate. And speaking of wild foods, the Oaxacan ones are too big for this to happen. But we have and and I'm digressing a little bit, but I think it's worth mentioning. We have a I mean, chili piquin from the northern parts of Mexico, right? The chiltepines, yeah. Yeah, chiltepines or chili piquin. They're they're very small, and if if you try to grow those, you'll have a very hard time making the seeds germinate. Like very hard. You, it's, uh, I mean, it's doable, but you need. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna correct you a little bit. So chili piquin is very easy to grow, and and I know tons and tons of people who grow it. That's the one that's shaped like a little bullet. Yes, I will, the ch- I will defend the myself on that correction. I'll tell you why. The chiltepines, the round ones, that's what you're talking about. Those yes. are virtually impossible to cultivate. Those, uh, that's what I'm talking about. But the thing is that the names are, it's like lime and lemons. The names are switched. I call them piquins because everybody calls them piquin in, in Mexico. But they really are the chiltepines, yes. The, ah, okay, because you know, in in New Mexico and in uh, Arizona, where you can find them wild, that's they're they're distinguished from the Pekin, which is the bullet shaped one, yep. by being like, oh, that's the Chiltepin. It's you know, this is the thing about and, about names like Pasilla and Ancho. Yeah, in some places they're the same chili. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we're gonna tell you, uh, but there's a uh, I was referring to to the Chiltepin, the Go round one. And the way they grow in the wild is that birds eat them because they're drawn to the bright red that they turn. And then when they're flying, they poop somewhere. And the seeds uh, have been processed in this acidic environment. And now they germinate on their own. They actually germinate when the bird lands and poops. Oh. Because the, the chiltepine chili needs to be near another plant to give it shade. So when you're actually looking... I've actually foraged for them in Arizona. And they're always... 
tucked in and around uh, like a creosote bush that or something true. else that's, yeah. that's bigger. And so it's when the birds are, are perching on the, you know, the bigger bush and they poop out the seeds that gives them the environment that they can they can germinate in because if they were out in the middle of the of the the desert basically it would be too hot and dry. I think we should get some birds, Hank. <laughs> well, you know, I actually have a cupboard full of these Chiltepine chilies, so it's uh, and I like them a lot. The, if if you guys have never had them, they're wicked hot, but it's a, a a starburst and then it's gone. Yeah, it's not a lingering heat. Yes, yes, they're, and the the flavor is just delicious and dried. They taste amazing. But fresh is a completely different. It, it's a fruitier, grassier. They're still hot as hell. They are. Yeah. I've never had the the round ones fresh. I've had the I've had the pekins, the bullet the bullet shapes ones. I've had them fresh, and those are I like the green ones a lot. I just got home from Montreal. Uh, I have them in my fridge. They're preserved uh, salt. They're delicious, man. Mexican markets are really quite good where we live. But if you, say, are listening to this in Montana or someplace where you don't have a Mexican market nearby, is there an online source that you would go to to get good ingredients? The one online ingredient that I buy is the chil- the, the, the dried, round, red chiltepin. I, I first bought them through Amazon. Can you believe that? Amazon has everything now. I know. You're right. I actually I bought them through Amazon, too. <laughs> but, they, but they actually were just fulfilling uh, the name of the other company. I think it's spiceandchili.com. Or, or Chilean spies, something along those lines. But Amazon carries them. And okay. the, I'll look. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes for this. Spiceandchili.com. By the way, your chiltepine and peanut hot sauce is to die for. Yeah, we really like it. It's it's hot though. People don't believe me. It, it it's amazing how uh, they come. We give them the tacos, and I tell them this is very hot. I don't know how to say more. It's very hot. Be careful. Oh no no, I like hot. And they go two spoonfuls or something. Oh, that's just because they're pussies. And they take the first bite now, <laughs> two spoonfuls. I love that. I just yeah. love that stuff on everything. So. Yeah, I know. So this leads us to um, to Nick's Taco. So, I mean, we talked about Nick's Tamal, which yep. is, by the way, if you haven't, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's N-I-X-T-A-M-A-L. Well, well, Patricio's soon-to-be restaurant, which will open any day now, is called Nick's Taco, as in Nick's Tamal Tacos. And it's a portmanteau, yeah, between Nick's Tamal and Taco. It is, in fact, a portmanteau. Very good. Excellent. You give extra points for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in uh, Roseville, California, which is just outside of Sacramento. And the and we know Patricio's tacos as, oh, these are these are the kind of tacos that you can't get at a taco stand. Or you can't get them at, it's, you know, you can't get them anywhere because they're, they're just different. And, I mean, again, we, I hesitate to use the term authentic, but they're... Yeah. They just taste different from everything else that you would get. It's, and hard, so, it's hard to describe it. People ask me, so, so what's different about them? You have to try them, man. I, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm cooking them like in my hometown. Uh, the, to begin with, the tortillas fresh next to mouth. Let's start there. A good taco cannot be a good taco if the tortilla is shitty. And that's, you make, are you making your, um, are you making your, your flour tortillas too? Not the flour tortillas, no. No, uh, at least not at first. They're a whole, they're an entirely different animal. I mean, it's it it it's a short though, and it's it's just a different process. Uh, it is. And 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 the whole, I mean, even though I love them, and we will have them on on the menu, I am having those outsourced. They're being made specifically for us. It, I would love to make them in house. I just want to stay true to to what the value offering is of Nixtaco, which is Nixtamal per se. So, gotcha. We. It, 
I'm investing a ton of effort and time and money to get the proper equipment and and to do it right. And and uh, we're sourcing, like I said, all the corn from Oaxaca uh, through Macienda, who does an amazing job uh, importing uh, all sorts of uh, of of land-raised species. They're they're really trying to promote the use of. And like you say, I hesitate to say authentic or real because well, it's heirloom. It's only heir, their old heirloom, varieties of heirloom varieties of corn. Yeah. So we uh, we tapped into that and uh, we got a good allocation secured for the year. So uh, all the tortillas we've made in house, a la minute. Uh, there were, because it that's the other thing. If if you buy tortillas in the store or even if you make them and you cool them, when you reheat them, they'll be amazing. They'll they'll be great. There's there's no problems with that. But they'll be better if they still have residual heat from the original first cook. So uh, we're going to try to do everything a la minute, cook the tortillas, assemble the tacos, serve you the tacos. We're buying the highest quality meat that we can afford for the price point that we're offering. We're taking no shortcuts. Everything is done with technique and there's a process involved and we just want to be consistent, you know. In, I can I can I can vouch for them. They're they're badass tacos. So do you have a do you have an opening day yet? Uh, we're probably looking at about six weeks. We just got the the last permit we needed was approved the day before yesterday, and we picked up the plants today. Construction can now go full steam, and we're probably looking at anywhere from around six weeks. Yeah, so early, early May. I would shoot for mid-May. I mean, you know how mid-May. restaurants are, Hank. I mean, people, yeah, it's true. People ask me, hey, so when are you opening? I'm like, yeah, February, but we're late, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're if you're listening to this and you're ever in the Sacramento area uh, after mid-May, it is absolutely worth a trip to Nick's Taco because you're going to have really serious craft beers, too. Also, yeah, we'll have eight, eight handles, and it just goes hand in hand, you know. I mean, tacos and beer, but it's more than that. I mean... I'm trying to help out as as much as I can, all the local small brewers, just because, well, we're a community and, and, and they're producing amazing beer that I love. And, and I mean, these guys are my friends and they adhere to the same uh, principles and standards that, that we abide by. Like it's all organic grain or it's, it's, it's all natural, if not organic at least. But the, don't lie. Don't lie. You just don't want to have to serve like shitty, you know, Saul at your at your place. You like the good beer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I also like the whole culture of doing something with care, you know. And I know. and I, I and I, I and I see that these guys are doing it. Uh, so I I I do want to showcase craft beer with craft tacos. There's nothing wrong with drinking uh, Mexican lagers that come in clear bottles. I will not say names, but <laughs> if you like them, we'll have them. I mean, I mean, we're trying to please everyone, and and at least offering a real experience that you hello and welcome to the hunt gather talk podcast i am your host hank shaw and this week we are going to talk mexican i have invited a friend of mine a chef from monterrey mexico named patricio wise who is now living here in northern california to talk all things mexican we're going to go over things like What is it about regional Mexican cuisine that you may not see here in the United States? We're going to talk about the importance of corn in Mexican cooking, which, if you don't know, is, for most of the country, the foundational grain that they use in pretty much everything in the kitchen, from soup to desserts to tortillas to sopes to tostadas and tamales and you name it. Finally, we talk about a bigger issue, and the bigger issue is how do you even get started 
to really learn a cuisine, to be a student of Mexican food or Italian food or Thai food or something like that. Because all of us come from a place and we all know our own cooking, whether it's New England or the American South or Tex-Mex or whatever, but most of us don't want to cook that one kind of food for the rest of our lives, right? So how do you get into a new cuisine in a way that will make what you cook at least a reasonable approximation of what you would get in, say, Oaxaca or Thailand or Japan or Africa or Germany. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. And here we go. Would actually have in Mexico if you were a Mexican. That's kind of how I would like to explain it. This is what a Mexican would eat in Mexico. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show. Um, Thank you I'm for having me. Not take up any more of your time because we've been talking for over an hour now. Oh, good. Thank you and, for having me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is Patricio Wise, uh, and his restaurant is Nick's Taco. It will be open soon. You have a website, right? Yes, it's uh, nixta.co. So if you read it without the dot, it reads Nick's Taco. <laughs> clever. Very clever. <laughs> well, that's our show this week. Thank you again for listening to Hunt, Gather, Talk. I am your host, Hank Shaw. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, it really helps me out a lot if you can like the podcast in social media or subscribe to it in whatever platform that you subscribe to your podcasts. Or if you really liked it, leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or some other platform. Uh, it helps me out a lot. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you. And I hope you tune in next week. Thanks. Thanks.